Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Coronavirus Explained. Here's your host, Ryan Gorman. Right now, the entire world is focused on combating a global pandemic. From Europe to here in the United States, life has been upended as communities work to mitigate the spread of this infectious disease and care for those who have contracted it. Here at iHeartRadio, we're working to make sure you have the right information. So for the next half hour, we'll be joined by a few experts about a variety of subjects related to COVID-19. In a moment, I'll talk to a top epidemiologist who's part of the team developing modeling and projections for the White House. He'll explain how those coronavirus models are put together what the projections mean, and what we should know about the outbreak based on his research. I'll also check in with Meals on Wheels America to talk about their efforts to provide assistance during this pandemic. More and more people from coast to coast are in dire need of help, and Meals on Wheels is on the front lines of the battle to make sure no American goes hungry during these trying times. And finally, a psychotherapist specializing in staying calm and resilient through a pandemic will join me to share tips on how to best handle these unusual circumstances we all find ourselves in. All of that and more is on the way as we try to help you better protect yourself and your family and better understand how to navigate this public health crisis. Our first guest is here to answer some basic questions about the coronavirus outbreak modeling and projections that you've seen recently. I'm joined now by Population Health Chief Strategy Officer and Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the University of Washington, Dr. Ali Makdad. Dr. Makdad, thank you for offering your expertise for this show and for helping all of us better understand the science that goes into predicting the spread of this infectious disease. Let's start with a general breakdown of the information used in these COVID-19 models. So we are modeling mortality, unlike other models out there, we're modeling mortality for one simple reason, because we know for sure what people are dying from in the United States and how many people are dying from COVID-19. Others have modeled the, the infection and how many people are diagnosed. And as you all know, we have been behind on testing and not everybody who has the disease has been tested because we know some of them are asymptomatic. And we are informing our model uh, on certain uh, variables such as social distancing uh, from experience that we have seen in uh, Wuhan and South Korea in Singapore and in Italy as well. So we will we tell our model that there is a social distancing from experience from somewhere else when it was implemented the second day, the third day, the first day, this is what happened to the number of deaths and it should come down and we are informing the model to do that. Your team was behind the projections used by the president that led to the extension of the White House social distancing guidelines through April 30th. Now, the modeling showed that if no mitigation efforts were taken, up to 2 million deaths could occur in the United States. And even if we do take tough mitigation steps, we're still looking at between 100,000 and 240,000 lives lost to this virus. How did you arrive at those numbers? So you're right. Uh, 
our models were used by the White House, and uh, we have to brief people around the president uh, about what we are doing and how we are doing it. And we are updating our numbers on a daily basis because we are receiving new data and more updated data. And the way we came up to this number is by taking the current death rate in every state. We're doing this by state, state by state, and we're projecting it to the future, similar to what you know people do in projecting GDP and, and employment. We've done all these models before, and we have statistical means to do so. We're talking to Population Health Chief Strategy Officer and Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the University of Washington, Dr. Ali Makdad. When did you look at the data and say to yourself, America isn't on a great track and we need to step up our efforts immediately in order to get this outbreak under control? You know, we, uh, from day one, so we started doing these models at the request of our own uh, medical school here, so university hospitals here. We have several hospitals. One of them is the Harborview Hospital, which is a big federal hospital for our state, and it's in our county. So we we got a request for us to provide numbers of ventilators, uh, ICU beds, and beds in order to help them with the search after the first case that we have received here in, uh, in Seattle, as you know, Nahomish County. And immediately from these numbers, we were, all of us, alarmed what we are seeing uh, from what we have known about this virus and what we have seen unfolding in China and in other countries, that if this has, you know, gets a foot in our country and starts spreading the way it spread elsewhere, we will be overwhelmed. Our medical system will be overwhelmed. The good news about what we have done is we provided these first projections. The second time when we have done these projections, our state here in Washington, we have implemented the measures, social distancing measures. And our governor uh, at that time implemented, uh, we shut down all our schools and our university, by the way, was the first university to move to online classes. And then we uh, we had an order to stay at home from the governor here and we had an order for non-essential services to close down. And that has us a lot because we're seeing a reduction in the projected number based on these. And we know these measures have worked elsewhere. And we know now that they are working in our own country, in our own county, in our own city. And we're strongly recommending that these measurements should stay in place. And that's what came out of the White House announcement that now we're extending the stay at home until the end of April. Is there a region of the country or a state that you're most concerned about? So uh, you are concerned about the big uh, cities where there are a lot of people. New York is a good example. New York, because people fly into New York, being a uh, business capital of uh, the country and the world, and it's a congested city. People are very close to each other. So your concern in all these models is uh, the big cities. And if the virus starts spreading fast in these big cities, what we have seen in New York, for example, uh, that's what is alarming us. So the cities like Miami, who took immediately a uh, an action and said stay at home for Miami-Dade County. Uh, I know in like in Atlanta, Georgia, there are orders to stay at home, whereas the state hasn't issued that order. So it's very important for us to keep stressing that point, that we have a role to play, each one of us. We're talking about having medical equipment. We're talking about empowering our physicians to do a good job. But also we need to keep in mind you and I, and our loved ones, our families, we should stay at home and make sure we give our health 
doctors, our physicians, our hospitals enough time to be better prepared. You know, every hospital right now in the country is doing surge plans. They're adding more beds. They're trying to find out more ventilators. They're trying to create more ICU beds. So we give them more time by delaying the onset of the disease, by reducing the number of patients going there. And the last thing you and I want in this country is for a physician to have to face the hard decision who should I put on a ventilator? Now I have two patients who need it, who need the ventilator, and I have only one ventilator. We have all of us a role to play. We're so much connected here, and by staying at home and not getting out of our houses unless it's really urgently needed. And when we get out of our house to practice safe distance, they always six feet from everybody else. Be careful, and if you don't feel well, stay at home. But the most important message from what we are seeing right now and the new data. And remember, this is a new virus. We're learning more about it as we go. We have learned, like recent studies are saying that many people who get the disease, some people who get the disease, uh, are not symptomatic. So basically, they have no symptoms, but they do have coronavirus. So now it's even more important for all of us to assume we are infected, to assume that we should stay at home, to assume that we should help each other not to spread the we're talking to Population Health Chief Strategy Officer and Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the University of Washington, Dr. Ali Makdad. Everyone wants to know when life can go back to normal. How do you answer that question with what we know right now? You know, I would love to be able to answer accurately this, this question, but unfortunately for all of us, the the virus is making all these shots. I mean, the virus is right now in control. When we look at the data from the, for the country, when we look at the, you know, as a whole country, we see that, you know, what we are projecting, it's coming down. Sometimes by mid-June, we go back to less than 10 deaths per day in the country. So it makes us, people who work in public health, feel comfortable that we have controlled that pandemic. But there is a lot of if here. All of this depends on how well we adhere to these messages of staying at home, how well we adhere to this separation and you know this distancing from different from other people around. Uh, it, all of this depends on these factors. Population Health Chief Strategy Officer and Professor of Health Metrics Sciences at the University of Washington, Dr. Ali Mukdad. Doctor, thank you for taking the time to help us better understand the science behind our country's public health recommendations. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Next, let's turn to Meals on Wheels America to find out the steps they're taking to help those in need get through these difficult times. Joining me now is Meals on Wheels America President and CEO Ellie Hollander. Ellie, thank you for taking the time to share the great work being done by your organization. Before we get into how this coronavirus outbreak has impacted Meals on Wheels, give us an overview of the service you provide on a daily basis, during a pandemic or not during a pandemic, to millions of Americans. Right. Well, Meals on Wheels is in every community across America, Ryan. Um, all shapes and sizes, 5,000 community-based programs serving rural, suburban, urban settings, uh, highly vulnerable population, many of whom uh, have multiple chronic conditions and uh, are not able to easily get out of their home or shop for groceries. So we provide this service to millions of Americans in need uh, throughout the year, some in senior community centers, senior cafes, uh, dining centers where people that are more, more mobile can get out and get a meal 
have some socialization with their peers, maybe do an exercise class or play bridge. Um, and then for the homebound clients, we do a, a daily delivery of oftentimes a hot meal and maybe a cold meal to those that, uh, that, that really are only seeing that Meals on Wheels staff member or volunteer in a given day. So I read that traffic to your Find Meals page has gone up as high as 650% from an average week before COVID-19 started to really disrupt life here in the United States. Talk about the increase in demand and what you're trying to do to meet it. Right. Well, we do have uh, a location on our website, which is important for people to know, if it's okay to say. It's uh, www.mealsonwheelsamerica.org slash findmeals. That enables people to find a local program in their community where they, if they need a meal, they need a meal for a loved one, they want to volunteer, and so forth. So normally, uh, you know, we get we get a lot of people going to that. But in the last two weeks since COVID-19 um, uh, became uh, a pandemic, we've seen an increase of 650% of traffic going to that site. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody going to the site is looking for a meal, but I can tell you based on the programs with whom I'm speaking on a daily basis, everybody is seeing an increased demand. Not only from those that I mentioned earlier who were previously able to get to a senior center, those have now been closed to practice social distancing. Those folks are now needing to get meals at home if they aren't able to do you know, a grab and go to drive to a facility to pick up a pack of meals. Uh, but we're also seeing people that now are needing to stay home either because they're being asked to um, to self-isolate or because their state has, you know, a lockdown. So we're seeing an increase overall in the number of people needing meals at home. So our programs are quickly pivoting to scale up their service. We're talking to Meals on Wheels America President and CEO Ellie Hollander here on iHeartRadio. Who qualifies for these meals? Well, historically, it's really been based on social or economic needs. So you know, if, if somebody uh, has multiple chronic conditions and it's challenged to be able to get out of the home, for example, they may be eligible for home-delivered meals. But obviously today we're relaxing those standards significantly because people that just can't get out and get a meal uh, need to, to get that kind of social in-community support. So our programs are doing everything they can to be able to prioritize, if you will, because the need is so great to make sure that we're first providing services to those who are the most vulnerable and literally are reliant on Meals on Wheels as a lifeline, and then trying to scale to be able to provide more more meals for more people. Is there any area of the country where the need has spiked the most, or is it basically all over? Honestly, Ryan, I'm seeing this. I mean, I'm hearing that it's the same thing everywhere, because oftentimes, like even in rural areas, for example, where uh, you know, we could be driving 30 miles just to deliver five meals to different people. There are limitations in terms of what what's available in, in terms of grocery stores and so forth. So in rural areas, in suburban, where more and more people, you know, are trying to, uh, to, to stay home, and in urban areas where you really can't even get out of your apartment, it's the, the need. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's great for 
great pretty much everywhere, I hate to say it. We're talking to Meals on Wheels America President and CEO Ellie Hollander on iHeartRadio. Have you faced any issues getting the food needed for these meals? It can be hit or miss in a lot of grocery stores these days as people keep stocking up. What about for Meals on Wheels America? You know, it really depends on where the program is located, uh, to be honest. But, we, you know, we have some really strong partners that have stepped up their capacity. I think where the difficulty is really uh, is being experienced is with shelf-stable meals. These are meals that can hold someone, you know, for a year. They don't, they don't expire, so they're not freshly cooked or frozen meals. That is becoming very difficult to source because we're all, including you and me, Ryan, we're all going to the grocery store sure. shopping for the same products, and those are the products that go into a shelf-stable meal. So it, it is becoming much more difficult to source those. Some programs are having no trouble. Some programs actually have commercial-sized kitchens where they're preparing 5,000 meals a day right now. Um, so it really depends on the individual community and the individual program. One aspect of the work you do that many people might not realize is that your volunteers are often the eyes and ears in the community for so many elderly residents. They make sure they're okay and report back if something isn't right. Those efforts are vitally important these days, but I'm sure it's also a challenge with social distancing guidelines. What adjustments have you made in order to maintain those relationships but keep everyone safe? Right. I mean, it's so important that the Meals on Wheels model, we always say, is more than just a meal. The meal is the entree, if you will, into the home. But it is that socialization, the companionship that becomes as important as the meal. So, yes, we have absolutely had to adjust our model to um, make sure that we are keeping not only the Meals on Wheels staff and volunteers safe, but we're not doing anything to uh, undermine the health and well-being of the seniors that we're serving. So, for example, I just delivered meals the other day. A lot of our programs are adopting a no-touch delivery where I still went up. I, I did all of the hand sanitizing, um, you know, keeping the social distance, knocking on the door, wiping the door down, announcing myself as Meals on Wheels, stepping back and observing the person on the other side, knowing their name and making sure that they were okay and having a conversation but within a safe distance. Um, in cases where that's not possible, where we've had to not be able to do a daily delivery, but scale back to maybe doing a couple of times a week, delivering multiple meals at once, we're augmenting that, that sort of eyes and ears service with regular telephone check-ins. Our volunteers are helping us do that. In fact, we're getting many new volunteers in some cases that are willing to make those kinds of phone calls or, or to send personal notes that we can deliver to a senior just to say, hey, there's someone there that's thinking about you. We're talking to Meals on Wheels America President and CEO Ellie Hollander here on iHeartRadio. Final thing I want to touch on, so many Americans want to help others right now. They know the need is growing and they want to contribute to make sure their community comes out of this intact. What are different ways people can safely assist Meals on Wheels America in your efforts across the country? Well, really, this is more about supporting Meals on Wheels, and Meals on Wheels America is facilitating that process. But we have set up a Meals on Wheels COVID-19 response fund that's really important for people that, that have some discretionary income and feel that they can contribute a little to help us do a lot. And that's at www.mealsonwheelsamerica.org slash COVID-19. A hundred percent of those funds are restricted to supporting our national and our local response to COVID-19. In fact, just later today, we'll be announcing um, we've been able to release a million dollars in direct funding that will be going to communities uh, to help them either either source.
source more meals, try to pay more for transportation, you know, to be able to hire more drivers and, and more paid staff to make sure that we're able to meet the needs of this high, exponentially growing demand for, the, for meals. Um, the other thing is, is that you, if you want to help a local community um, or you want to see if there's something that you can do directly, you can get on the Find Meals site I mentioned earlier, which is www.mealsonwheelsamerica.org slash findmeals, and that will connect you with your local program that's within your zip code, and then you can offer your support directly. I would just caution folks that right now many of our programs do need additional assistance in terms of uh, financial assistance, in terms of volunteers, but at the same time other programs can't handle more volunteers right now. So it's really on a case-by-case basis. I would just caution folks, we know you want to help. Um, just be patient with our programs. They're doing their very best to get back to you in real time. Meals on Wheels America President and CEO Ellie Hollander. Ellie, thank you for the time. And on behalf of all of us, thank you for the important work you're doing. Thanks so much, Ryan. Finally, to discuss mental health during these unusual, difficult times, I'm joined by psychotherapist and author, Dr. Mel Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz, thank you for taking the time to offer some advice on how all of us can stay calm and resilient as we wait for life to return to some kind of normalcy. There's a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of fear being felt by millions of Americans right now. Talk about dealing with those emotions so that they don't get the best of us. Well, Ryan, my point of view is that feelings are neither right nor wrong. We shouldn't judge feelings. Feelings are. Um, But what we can look at are thoughts. And um, in my book, The Possibility Principle, I delve deeply into how thoughts trick us into false realities. Now, in this pandemic, the entire planet is engulfed with fear. When our thoughts attach to fear, the result is anxiety. A part of this fear has to do with our addiction to certainty. We always seek to know the future. The problem is the future is called the future because it's unknowable. So when our thoughts go up to the future, what will happen? Will I fail? Could I die? How about my loved ones? we create an apprehension and anxiety. If right now you are well and your family and loved ones are well, then the key is to keep your thoughts focused in the present. And that's what I mean by vigilance of mind. This is a learned art form, which I teach, whereby you can learn to see your thoughts and choose not to become the thought. Think of someone who fishes and is not going to cook and eat the fish. They fish, and catch it, and then release it. The same technique with thought. See the thought. See what the thought is telling you, and then you decide whether to become the thought or not. Now, this works not only for fear around the pandemic. It works everywhere in life, and most importantly, in relationships and in communication. There's another piece to resilience here, in the urgency and crisis of the pandemic. And it's to look through the filter of relativity. With many of the people I work, I'm working now, of course, virtually only, with people all over the world, they complain about containment, their loss of freedom. So I take them through this exercise. I say, imagine that you're older, 
And this pandemic occurred 35 years ago. Maybe you're not observed. It was 35 years ago. No internet, no cell phones, no FaceTime, no cable, no Netflix. Now imagine yourself living with one landline that you have to share with your family members, and that's your life. Now bring yourself back into the present and think about all you have to be thankful for that you have at your disposal as you endure this pandemic. So see there the relativity of thought, which doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but it applies to many of us. It's very helpful. We're talking to psychotherapist and author Dr. Mel Schwartz here on iHeartRadio. I keep telling those who listen to my show, focus on what you can control. The best way to keep you and your family safe is to follow the social distancing guidelines, wash your hands, and do the other recommendations offered up by the top public health experts. Is that an effective way of thinking, or am I offering horrible advice to everyone? Well, no, I, I agree with that on two fronts. Um, in regard to control, um, going back to thought, I believe that in life the only thing I should seek to control or have a mastery of is my thought, because my thought creates the filter of how I experienced my life. But moving more toward what you were just discussing, um, yes, there's the vigilance of maintaining social distance, or in some cases, not going out at all, except maybe for a little exercise, um, being scrupulous um, about washing your hands, not touching your face and such. Now, there remain non-rational. Any number of people who think this won't impact them. They act brazenly and disrespectfully in that they continue to commingle. Sometimes parents um, have the assistance of these children in that regard. But when I explore it, I might ask that teenager, well, you know this virus can be spread like wildfire. And the answer is, yes, I know. Then why are you meeting with your friends, hanging out with them, not maintaining distance? And often the answer I get is, I'll be okay. Now, we see adults doing that as well. So I take that thought, I'll be okay. And say, well, that's a belief. How did you come to that belief? Many people don't engage opposing thoughts, or what I would call dissonance. Now, the way I explained it is, back in the old days when you went out to a restaurant, if they came by with the dessert menu, I'd be tempted. I'd look at that dish. It would give off endorphins. I'd want it. But then I would have an opposing thought. I'm going to feel like crap if I eat that. It's all full of sugar. The people who succumb to the limited belief, I'll be okay, are not letting in opposing thoughts to challenge their belief. And that's the way in which we can help family and friends who operate that way. Ask them, how did you come to that belief? We're talking to psychotherapist and author Dr. Mel Schwartz here on iHeartRadio. Another worry that many Americans have is the financial impact of this pandemic. That can take a real toll as there's so much uncertainty and a resolution to that uncertainty isn't likely to come in the immediate future. What are some ways people can better process those concerns? Those concerns are real and significant, and I wouldn't be so glib as to say what I often say, that in Chinese, the word crisis suggests opportunity, um, and that there are usually opportunities here for our growth and our development.
development. But nevertheless, there are countless individuals and families who don't know how to put food on the table or pay the rent or get relief from that. And those are real world problems. For others, seeing their assets diminished because of the stock market, um, the key is not to marginalize your life and, and devalue it in that way. Um, during the financial crisis of 12, 13 years ago, I assisted many high-income earners who lost their jobs and their careers to refigure their role, their passions, what they could bring into their life, and pursue employment differently. Now, it's different. The whole world is essentially shutting down. So in financial circumstances like that, it's best to be creative, to reach out and think about what kind of home-based, service-based business could I create through the Internet, just for example, or reaching out to others. But there's no quick, easy fix solution to the financial havoc in people's lives. That's real, and we're going to have to find a way to navigate through that. But when this happens, and any of those matters happen, it is essential to reach out and connect. You know, Eastern religions, mystics, and quantum physics have always said reality is as one. It's one inseparable universe. If you think about it now, well, it's one inseparable planet we live on. A, um, a positive person, positive coronavirus who is homeless can impact the life of a billionaire. There's no separation. But that connection is so helpful. I'm now offering live Zoom conference calls where I teach these techniques and take questions. And there's just a virtual community of up to a 1,000 people. So we need to reach out and access all that is open and available to help us navigate this dire uncertainty. Psychotherapist and author Dr. Mel Schwartz with us here on iHeartRadio. Dr. Schwartz, thank you for your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ryan. Be well. A big thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to all of you for listening to Coronavirus Explained. I'm Ryan Gorman on iHeartRadio. Stay safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.